0: Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning, and we trust that you are here with us. May my words now be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I want you to think for a moment about a time that you needed help. But not just any time. I'm talking about one of those specific times that you needed help, but the one person who could help you Was also the one person that you were desperate not to ask for help? I know you know what I'm talking about. Usually it's a person to whom you want to seem competent, but asking for this kind of help will make you seem incompetent. Or a person to whom you want to seem a success, but asking for help in this way will make you seem like a failure. So what you do is you search and search for any other option. Like you don't understand your homework. Or worse, you don't understand your kid's homework. <laughs> and you really don't want to email the teacher. You try all the other parents. Maybe you have your kid text some of their friends. You'd rather do anything than admit to the teacher that you don't know what's going on. But there's no help available. No one answers. And so finally, you're reduced to throwing yourself on the mercy of. Of the teacher and of course you expect the worst probably you think to yourself they'll expel my kid because my parental ignorance will reflect poorly on the school or maybe my ridiculous question will come up as a joke in the weekly email and everyone all the other parents who are smarter than me will get a good chuckle out of my foolishness now maybe this schoolwork homework example doesn't resonate with you maybe it's just me Um, But I bet you know this feeling. The one person who can help you is the person you least want to ask for help. It's a sticky situation. Now, we have before us this morning a very difficult parable, one which scholars largely agree is Jesus' most difficult, this Story about a dishonest manager in Luke chapter 16. You might say, We're in a sticky situation trying to interpret a parable about a guy who finds himself in a sticky situation. And so, before we really begin, I want to give us two interpretive keys that will help our understanding. Usually, it's one. This is an extra difficult story, so we get two keys to help us understand. The first one is one that we've talked about before, actually, many times. The idea of a story that's operating on two levels. In his classic novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is fresh in my mind because one of my kids has been reading it for school, a class which I have yet to ask for any help in, thank God. In this book, C.S. Lewis uses a taxonomy of what he calls deep magic and deeper magic. I don't want to spoil it for certain nine-year-olds in the congregation But suffice to say that in everyday life, the deep magic seems pretty much all-powerful and in control of everything. But then, at a critical moment, the truth of the deeper magic is revealed. And from a place in which you would never expect to find it. And it completely overwhelms everything. And this is how God often tells stories, right? In the Bible, this is standard operating procedure. There's a surface level story and something else going on. The story underneath the story that is not only profoundly powerful, but also almost always profoundly counterintuitive. For instance, Almighty God comes to earth, but not riding on a chariot or a sunbeam or something. He comes... As a human infant, his hometown is a backwater village, way off the beaten path from which no one expects anything of significance to come. He defeats death forever, but he does it by dying himself. Theologians have called this counterintuitive work of God. Subcontrario for you Latin learners out there. This means under the opposite. God loves doing unexpected and shocking but profoundly powerful things under the opposite of where we as sinful humans expect him to be at work. And this is the situation we find ourselves having to hope for in this parable of a dishonest manager, isn't it? There is supposedly some good news to be gleaned from a story about a thieving manager who decides to deceive those around him for selfish gain. Gosh, it's hard to see. But this knowledge that God loves to work under the opposite of where we expect him to work will help us understand what Jesus is trying to say in this hard to understand story. So this two stories at the same time under the opposite work of God is our first interpretive key. In order to see the second, I want to draw your attention to verse 8 of the passage that we read in which Jesus makes an important distinction. He says, quote, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Now keep that distinction in your mind. Children of this age versus children of light. Because again, it'll help us to understand. Because the particulars of this story are firmly fixed in the realm of this age, aren't they? Managers, debts, swindling, embezzlement, wheeling and dealing, and so on. The dishonest manager is a child of this age. And Jesus is using a story about such a child to teach something to his followers, the children of light. So we have a story from one world told to make a point to the citizens of another world. And that's our second interpretive key That the incidents of this world are pointing to truths from another different world. So two keys. The Lord's work under the opposite of where we expect. And this story's use of one world to illustrate another. And what we'll find when we use both of those interpretive keys is that underneath the story of a dishonest manager, just where you would never expect to find it, is a gospel story about how the law-giving God is also the saving God, the willing redeemer of sinners like you and me. So with our interpretive keys in hand, let's get into the story. You all heard it read, a manager is accused by the boss of being dishonest with the accounts, and so he's getting fired. Worried that he's going to have to find real work And not having the skill or the strength and being too ashamed to beg, the manager hatches a plan. He goes out to the people who owe the boss, and he reduces their debts. So that when he's eventually out on the street, they will think well of him and let him stay with them. Now these debtors will no longer owe the boss the huge amounts they once did. They'll owe these significantly smaller amounts. So the manager has been cheating the boss. That's why he's getting fired. And now it seems like he's cheating the boss even more for completely selfish reasons. But what happens? Not only does the boss commend him for acting so shrewdly, but Jesus throws in his two cents seeming to commend him as well. And I tell you, Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth. So that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. You can see how this story might lead to some confusion. But let's let all the specifics of the story, the trappings of what Jesus calls this world. Let's let the specifics fall away. What is at the most fundamental level happening here? actually pretty simple we have a man in a tight spot with his boss and that's the thing the situation of a child in this world that will teach a lesson to us as children of light because we too find ourselves in a broken fraught relationship with a superior but not just a boss here in this age Indeed, our broken relationship is with our ultimate master, almighty God, creator and sustainer of all things. There's a biblical construction that you might be familiar with, even if you've never given it much thought, which describes this rhetorical strategy. It's called an argument from lesser to greater, and it goes like this. If this one thing is true, how much more this other thing must be true as it relates to God? Now, a classic example comes from Jesus in a parable he's telling in Matthew 7, when he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And of course, you don't actually need the words how much more to make this idea work. Here's Jesus teaching on fear in Matthew chapter 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You hear it, right? If God loves and cares for sparrows, how much more does he love and care for you? And we have the same argument from lesser to greater going on in this parable of the dishonest manager. These are the first steps toward the revelation of the deeper magic that Jesus is teaching. If this dishonest manager finds himself in a bind with his earthly master, how much more will sinners like you and me find ourselves in a bind with a holy God? This manager finds himself at a crisis point, right? He's been caught out and his future is at stake. He's too weak to do manual labor. He's too proud to beg. How is he going to ensure that he's taken care of? What can he do? And here's the point. You're just like him. Your future is similarly at stake. You've been caught out too. You've done the things you ought not to have done. You have not done the things you ought to have done. You have not loved God with your whole heart, soul, mind, or strength. You have not loved your neighbor as yourself. Your eternal future is at stake. And you're too weak to justify yourself. How are you going to ensure that you are taken care of? What are you going to do? Here is Jesus' teaching. Take your cue from this dishonest child of this world and throw yourself on the mercy of your master. And the result? The very person against whom you have sinned will take care of you. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive, It's hard to see in the parable that this guy did throw himself on the mercy of his master, isn't it? It's not mentioned specifically in the story. In fact, it seems like he was ripping him off at the beginning of the story and ripping him off more at the end, right? He was doing something dishonest, something that got him fired. And now he's reducing the amount of money that the master is going to get back from these loans. The master might be furious. And of course, the master is still the master. If he'd wanted to, he could have come back in, seen what the dishonest manager had done, and told everyone, no, actually, that guy would already been fired, reinstituted the full debts, and thrown this guy in prison. But there's something else going on here. This dishonest manager has made a gamble. He's taking an obvious risk continuing to fudge with the master's books. He's already been fired. Now he's risking an even more severe punishment. But the gamble we see works. When the master sees what the manager has done, he commends him for it. So why? What's happened here? The dishonest manager, by his slashing of the debts, has made the master look generous. Remember, we're dealing with the children of this world. And this game is being played by those rules. So think about it. The manager has been fired. He walks out of the master's office and no one other than the manager and the master knows yet. The manager's still got the books. And since word hasn't gotten out yet... The master's debtors still think this manager is working on behalf of the master. And he proceeds to cut down all their debts. The guy who owes 100 jugs of olive oil now only owes 50. The guy who owes 100 containers of wheat now only owes 80. These people, the ones who have taken out the loans, would all have thought the same thing. What a generous Master this is to reduce these debts like this. After all, it's the master's money. And so now we see the nature of the manager's gamble. He's betting that the master actually is generous, actually is merciful, and will appreciate being shown in this light. And it works. The master is merciful does appreciate being shown in a generous light, and shows mercy to the manager. And here's the biblical argument from lesser to greater. If this master is like that, and commends this dishonest manager for his shrewdness, how much more will our God commend us when we throw ourselves on his mercy? Remember, The manager is not being commended for his dishonesty. He's being commended for his shrewdness, for his plan. He's being commended for his realization that the person who judged him is also the one who can help him, who can forgive him, who can redeem him, who can make everything okay. And this is our situation too. When we get caught out, we want desperately to figure out a solution on our own. We like to hide our shame in that way, like refusing to ask the teacher for help, or like the mistake that you make at work, the one that costs the company a bunch of money, the mistake that you know the boss can fix, but you'd rather do anything than admit to the boss that you're the one who made it. It's a special torture that the person best positioned to help you is the one you are most afraid of approaching. When the one you've wronged is the only one who can help. But with our God, with our God, you need not fear. Our God will indeed help. This is his promise. He will indeed redeem. He will indeed save. This is the deeper magic of the gospel. It is against almighty God that we have sinned. He is the creator, the lawgiver, the holy one. And we assume with the logic of this world that he will have no patience with us. No mercy. No compassion. And yet, not only is he, in fact, the only one who can save us, he has promised in Jesus Christ to do just that. He is the lawgiver, yes. But he is also in Christ, the lawkeeper. He is the creator, yes. But he is also in Christ, the redeemer, He is the Holy One, yes, but he is also in Christ, the one who gives his righteous perfection to sinners like us. This dishonest manager throws himself on the mercy of his master. And this, Jesus is teaching us, is the only thing for a sinner to do. You must confess you must repent, you must come again to Almighty God against whom you have sinned and ask for mercy. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, St. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. And indeed, the deeper magic of our lives and of the Christian gospel is that our master, who we have wronged, has indeed worked to redeem us. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You are, or maybe this morning, for the first time, you can be alive together with Christ. Believe this with us or reaffirm your faith. Jesus has come. You are made new. He has lived and you are saved. He has died, and you are resurrected. He has been raised again, and you are justified. You have been a dishonest manager. But having confessed, you will not be thrown out of the kingdom. Far from it. You will be commended, not because of what you have done, but because of your reliance on what Christ has done for you. You are redeemed on his account, made whole, and welcomed home. Amen.